Welcome to this episode of Ashurst Legal Outlook. My name is Tim West and I'm a partner in Ashurst London Dispute Resolution Practice. In this episode, we are looking at the topic of litigation funding and the fallout of the Supreme Court judgment in PACAR earlier this year. I'm here with Anna Morphy, a partner in our competition litigation team, and we are delighted to also be joined by Rosie Ayanu of Fortress Investment Group. Rosie is a director of legal assets at Fortress, uh, and Fortress are a leading, highly diversified global investment manager. Their legal assets business itself has more than 10 years experience of providing capital solutions to claimants, law firms and corporations across the globe, having made billions in dollars in aggregate commitments since 2010. All of which means that Rosie is particularly well placed to talk to us about the implications of the decision and what it means for the funding industry. So welcome, Rosie. Thanks, Tim, and thanks to you and Anna for inviting me to join you. The place to start is obviously the Packard judgment itself. For most litigators, I suspect the implications of the judgment are more interesting than the judgment. So we're not going to get into much detail on what the judgment says, but we should just cover the headline points to frame the discussion with Rosie. So Anna, do you want to very briefly just remind our listeners how this issue arose? Yes, of course. So the judgment, which was handed down at the end of July, arose out of two claims that were brought, one by the Road Haulage Association and one by an entity called UK Trucks Claims Limited. And they were claims um, in, brought in the Competition Appeal Tribunal, the CAT, um, for um, class actions damages um, based on competition law um, against the members of the trucks cartel um, who were found by the European Commission to have um, been in a cartel. And the claims um, were uh, brought by the RHA for an opt-in collective action um, under the uh, the collective action regime in the CAT and by UK Trucks claims for an opt-out um, or alternatively an opt-in claim um, in the CAT. And as is usual in collective actions brought in the CAT, um, both claims were funded by third-party litigation funders um, and those litigation funding agreements, the LFAs, um, contained um, a provision that allowed for an award-based return or alternatively an investment-based return. So just to be clear, the award-based return is where the funder gets a percentage of the damages recovered. Um, and the funder gets that after, typically anyway, gets that after um, the class has been paid out. And the investment-based return is a return to the funder based on the amount that they've invested in the claim. So the provisions in the LFAs for both claims were, were alternatively award-based or investment-based, whichever's the higher. Um, and the challenge that the defendants brought to those was that those claims, uh, those LFAs were uh, unlawful because they were uh, damages-based agreements. And uh, in the case of UK trucks claims, uh, damages-based agreements are not allowed um, for opt-out class actions in the CAT. Um, and either way, in respect of the RHA or the UK trucks claim claims, um, it was common ground that um, neither of their LFAs were compliant with the DBA regulations. And if they're damages-based agreements, they obviously need to be compliant with the DBA regulations. So that's the context in which um, the, the funding was challenged in those, those cases. 
So, Rosie, what do you think the effect on the market is going to be of this judgment? There's initially there was obviously quite a lot of talk about this having a chilling effect on funding and for litigation. Is that something that resonates with you? It's interesting reading the articles and um, of the judgment that I've seen. I think the catastrophizing of the judgment in articles and its impact for experienced professional and well-capitalized funders like Fortress and read that I've read in some articles and newspapers is, to put it bluntly, wrong. This is for a number of reasons, the most significant being that as experienced users of litigation funding know well, as a general rule, returns in funding agreements work from a multiple or a percentage of damages basis, or a combination of both. As the CATS first instance judgment in the Packard case itself recognises, which some others have failed to acknowledge, uh, in that case, and therefore the Supreme Court judgment, doesn't in itself hit the multiple return. And the role of multiples is to operate to provide a reasonable return to funders where a percentage of damages return is, for whatever reason, not viable. Multiples in as returns will continue to do that if the relevant LFA is structured correctly. As to whether the Supreme Court judgment will, of itself, having a chilling effect on the availability of funding, I think it's worth noting that there's been some recalibration happening in the market for a while now. That's been going on behind the scenes. More significant and broader global financial and credit market factors have been driving that. That recalibration, to my mind, serves to underline the importance of selecting your funder wisely, doing your due diligence, and ensuring funding parties work with established, experienced, and well-capitalized funders. That's probably for another podcast, but I don't think that necessarily what we might see in the market arising from that will be driven by the Supreme Court judgment. So will the Supreme Court judgment of itself having a chilling effect? My view is that the answer to that is no. As I've already noted, the hyperbole around the impact of the judgment is just wrong. Administratively burdensome, yes. Catastrophic, no. I do think, though, that the judgment is another cog in a broader wheel about funding of single claims in the UK post-Brexit. As funders, we want to fund good, economically sound claims in the UK, but also throughout the globe. We fund cases in the UK, but also in Europe and beyond. The UK is and will remain a significant jurisdiction for Fortress, but all of our eggs are not in the UK basket. The development of consumer-focused and group action regulation alongside significantly lower budgets and the lack of adverse cost risk and from a competition angle, the follow-on nature of competition decisions are making other European jurisdictions increasingly attractive to bring funded claims. Thanks, Rosie. So you've touched on quite a few points there in terms of the, the nature of the case within which this Supreme Court judgment um, arose. Um, but, but just sort of panning out from that, you've obviously just referred to the fact that um, this Supreme Court judgment is in relation to 
to competition claims and within that, you know, class actions and the question of opt-in, opt-out class actions and UK claims. Um, and you've talked about obviously Fortress's activities um, on a much wider scale than that. So in different um, areas of litigation, not just in terms of um, opt-out class actions and also obviously in, in litigation abroad. Do, do you, where do you see the biggest impact of this decision? Do you feel that insofar as there is going to be a significant impact of this, it's going to be limited to competition class actions in the UK? Or do you think this is going to have wider ramifications, albeit not as, as sensationalised as, as you're saying the media is sort of picking up on? I, I think the implications are only relevant to UK or, frankly, English and Wales-based litigation uh, in its broadest sense. But I think the impact for those cases is is the same whatever subject matter of case one is considering. So, Rosie, if what's now available to funders is, is an investment-based or cost-based return um, as opposed to an award-based return, what effect do you think that's going to have? And do you think that changes the risk profile for funders? I, I don't think it changes the risk profile at all, actually. The role of the multiple, which is the investment-based approach, in funding agreements is among other things to protect about against downside scenarios and we always model our terms and consider our risk from a downside pr perspective frankly as all prudent investors should so on this basis i don't think the risk profile for funders has changed do you think multiples will just go up it seemed to me that logically if you know if multiples aren't seen to be enough they'll just you'll just say okay it's going to be sort of five to eight x rather than i i don't think the market i don't think the mark personally i mean if we can get eight x what a joy but i don't think the market will ever accept eight x i think mm. I, I just don't think commercially claimants or their lawyers would ever be able to justify that Mm. Now, I just wondered if it was going to sort of shift your sort of, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul in a way because you don't like the Well, that, that, um, that the risk base, exists, but, but I think it will be more measured than yeah. those yeah. extremes. Yeah. Um, Rosie, in terms of people reviewing the existing funding arrangements and now looking to ensure that they can remain enforceable, that might include taking a pretty close look at some severance clauses. Do you see a large repapering or renegotiation exercise being needed across the market? And would you think that the renegotiation would be in principle preferable to having to just rely on a severance clause? We've been preparing for this judgment since the Supreme Court hearing earlier this year, and indeed before that, thinking about scenario planning. And we've been reviewing all of our funding agreements accordingly. We were prepared for the eventuality of this judgment. It would be wrong for me to say there wouldn't be any agreements that will require tweaking as a result of the judgment. But that doesn't translate into a large repapering or renegotiate. Rene re that doesn't translate into a large repapering or renegotiation exercise for Fortress or a significant impact for Fortress's investments in the UK. And then moving to 
what next beyond the enforceability of particular agreements, thinking more, more broadly in terms of the market response, what changes would you like to see as the market adapts to the effect of the Supreme Court's decision? This isn't in response to the Supreme Court decision per se. It is a more a market observation and a drum I've been banging for a long time. It's a bit of a personal crusade of mine. I would like to see a more grown-up conversation, an understanding about the role of funding, its position in the market and the positive impact it genuinely has for all market participants. For access to justice, yes, but also as with any other forms of investment, as a finance tool for the benefit of consumers, businesses, financial institutions, law firms and beyond. For too long now, the conversation about funding has been linear in the context of them and us, claimant and defendant, single case litigation. The market has developed way beyond that, if it was ever there in the first place. In the arena in which Fortress operates, legal finance is a sophisticated and valuable financing tool for all parts of the legal landscape. My hope is that as discussions following the Supreme Court decision progress, the discourse in the market will move on to reflect that. And in the same vein, thinking about wider implications of the decision, there have been calls for legislative change to address the conclusion that litigation funding agreements may be damages-based agreements, but then also many people I think it's fair to say, have noted that the DBA regulations are perhaps not the clearest regulations on the statute book. And there was indeed work to update those going on before the pandemic hit. What changes would Fortress like to see in, in light of the Supreme Court decision? I think you would be surprised if my answer to this question wasn't that we would like to see legislative change to achieve, achieve clarity. Clarity for all market participants is important and legislation expressly stating that litigation funding agreements, including those which have a percentage of damages return, sit outside the DBA regime, will help to achieve that. As noted in the ALF, which is the Association of Litigation Funders statement released on the day of the judgment. As far as I understand it, it has never been the intention of government for funding agreements to be treated as DBAs. But it does seem that in light of the Supreme Court judgment, technical amendments are appropriate to re-clarify the government's intent when it introduced DBAs. And so I would support legislation to make the position clearer for the benefit of all. More broadly, I think that this point resonates well with my previous one. Legislation would, I think, as I've already said, provide useful clarity. But I hope in such legislation being tabled and developed, it will help to better frame the conversation around, among market participants about the use and deployment of litigation funding and its role in the broader English dispute resolution landscape. 
All right, thank you very much, Rosie. That was a really interesting um, set of Q&A. So we'll, we'll let you go, but thank you very much for your time and, and we'll look forward to seeing how this pans out in the market. Thanks for uh, inviting me to join you. Well, that was very interesting, Anna. Lots of useful, interesting insights there from Rosie. I thought it might be useful for us to, to talk about some of the broader implications beyond the impact on litigation funders and look at how things might be impacted in the Competition Appeal Tribunal. Obviously, the vast majority of collective actions in the CAT have been brought and funded as opt-out claims. And insofar as the funding agreements in those claims have a percentage-based return, they're obviously going to need to be carefully reviewed and potentially replaced, as we discussed with Rosie. But What's your view on how this is currently playing out since the since the judgment and how you think it might continue to play out in the CAT over the next three to six months in terms of case management? Yes, I think it's interesting what Rosie says, that Fortress and no doubt lots of other well-established litigation funders were prepared for the judgment um, and no doubt will have taken steps or were taking steps to ensure that they're funding arrangements were compliant with the judgment. Um, I think what we've seen in the CAT in the past few months since the PACAR judgment was handed down uh, is that funding arrangements are being reconsidered, both in claims that have already been certified and claims going through the certification process at the moment. Um, so, for example, in the uh, Gutman versus Apple collective action, that was one that was certified on the 1st of November, uh, but the certification has been subject to resolving terms of the class representatives funding arrangements, which suggests they're obviously still working those through. Um, there's some other claims, for example, um, the Spottiswood claim against the Cables cartel um, that have been granted permission to amend. Um, those are also pre certification stage and that's presumably uh, permission to amend to align among other things funding arrangements with the with the requirements of PACAR so we are seeing this in in some of the cases that are at around or coming up to the certification stage um, we've also uh, in the proposed class claim against Sony in respect of Sony's conduct relating to its PlayStation ecosystem um, we've seen the certification hearing in that claim took place back in June, um, but in October, there was an additional hearing on funding matters in which Sony has challenged, uh, among other things, uh, the compatibility of the multiple return element of the funding agreement with the PACAR judgment, as well as other elements of the funding. And the CAT hasn't issued its judgment in that case um, yet, as we sit here recording this, uh, so we'll wait to see where that goes, but it's indicative of the direction that defendants might now take in terms of opening up further challenges to funding arrangements for these collective actions. Um, and I wonder if for some claims that were maybe on the verge of being filed again, if they have funding arrangements that need tweaking to ensure compliance. Um, so I think what we are seeing is an impact on claims that are at around the certification stage. But more generally, as Rosie says, I think funders were probably largely prepared for this, or at least most of them were. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. Um, I mean, one thing that that is interesting to consider as well, I suppose, is whether there will be an impact, and if so, to what extent that impact will be on the claims 
that have been certified some time ago and and they are now well underway uh, towards trial. Um, I you know we've not yet uh, again at the time of recording seen any of those cases uh, be pulled back um, for a hearing on funding arrangements. So it may well be that, that that Rosie is right, but I suppose all of that is subject to seeing how the current challenges that you referred to go and, and whether that then leads other defendants to to raise similar issues that that halts those those claims and and, requ and requires further hearing on on funding arrangements. Yes, and it's always a requirement that a class representative has funding in place to be able to meet the defendant's costs if the claim's unsuccessful. And so I think um, it's going to be the case that class representatives will come under pressure from defendants if they aren't aligning their funding arrangements to the Supreme Court judgment. Um, and you're right to say that it's um, it's within the cat's gift on an ongoing basis to ensure that the class representatives meet the criteria for representing the class. Uh, one of which is having those funding agreements in place. That's all we've got time for. Thank you for listening and be sure to check out our other episodes in this series. We would welcome any feedback or questions, so do get in touch with any of us. Our details are on the website. To ensure you don't miss out on any future episodes, do subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast platform. While you're there, please feel free to keep the conversation going and leave us a rating or review. Until then, thanks for listening.